Having finished our study in 1 John, I thought this might be our best opportunity to look at uh, two of the most commonly overlooked letters in the New Testament, and that's 2nd and 3rd John. They're actually the shortest documents in the New Testament, shorter even than the other two one-chapter books, Philemon and Jude. Each of these letters contains less than 300 words in the Greek original, and they were probably written on just one piece of papyrus. So technically, these are not letters, they're postcards. Now, the two major themes in 1 John were truth and love. The key words were to know God's truth and to love your brothers. In fact, the word know is used 36 times in 1 John. The word love is used 43 times. So it shouldn't surprise us when we come to these two letters that the themes recur, love and truth. But here John is not putting the emphasis on teaching those concepts, but on applying them. He's not introducing them to us, he's explaining them. He's showing us how we in our lives need to balance love and truth. Carl Walinda started performing on high wires at the age of six. By the age of 17, he had developed his own act, a rather amazing four-man, three-level pyramid balancing on a chair on top of a bar stretched across the shoulders of two men on bicycles atop a wire 50 feet in the air. And then to top that off, he had his wife climb up on his shoulders as the climax. His family became known as the Flying Walindas. He walked across Niagara Falls on a high wire. When it was being built, he walked across the open top of the Houston Astrodome. At age 65, he stood on his head along a 1,200-foot-long wire across the Tallulah Falls Gorge in Georgia. But in March 1978, in an exhibition in San Juan, Puerto Rico, at age 73, Carl Walinda lost his balance and fell to his death. You see, losing your balance can kill you. But not just if you're a high-wire artist. You can have your feet firmly planted on the ground and lose your balance between truth and love, and it will kill you in the area of relationships. It will kill your marriage, your friendships, your reputation, your testimony. And so John writes this postcard to us to let us know that we need to balance truth and love. Now, John writes second John. You hear that? Somebody's letting the tub out. We'll probably listen to that for this whole service, so get used to it. John writes 2 John, we're told in verse 1, to a lady and her children. The occasion for writing, we're told in verse 4, is that he ran into some of her children. 
And then down in verse 13, we're told that he also ran into some of her nieces and nephews. Now, he apparently ascertained from them that she had the concept of love down, but she needed to balance that with truth. And the particular area that John focuses on is her relationship to people she didn't know very well, her relationship to people she had just met, which is really the meaning of the word hospitality. The word hospitality in the Greek is philo-xenia. Philo means love, xenia means stranger. Hospitality is the love of strangers. And in the first century, there was much opportunity for that. The establishment and consolidation of the Roman Empire made travel easier and safer. Made it easier because the Romans kept building roads made it safer because they put their legions out there to police those roads. But the accommodation on those Roman roads was not what it is today. They didn't have fast food. They didn't have the Drury Lodge. They had some inns, but they were unclean both physically and morally. And so there were considerable opportunities for you to open your home to strangers, to Christians who were traveling, to missionaries. And that is really an expression of what the gospel is really all about. Now, the Bible has much to say about hospitality. When Paul was in Philippi, he stayed with Lydia. When he was in Thessalonica, he stayed with Jason. When he was in Corinth, he stayed with Gaius. When he was in Caesarea, he stayed with Philip. When he was in Jerusalem, he stayed with Manson people who entertained the Apostle Paul. 1 Timothy 5.10 gives us the qualifications for widows who were to be supported by the church. One of the qualifications was she had to show hospitality to strangers. 1 Timothy 3.2 gives us the qualifications for an elder. One of those qualifications is hospitality. Romans 12.15 says we're all to be given to hospitality. 1 Peter 4.9 says, Be hospitable to one another without complaint, without griping, without fussing. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 2 says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. When Jesus sent out his disciples in Luke chapter 10, He said, whoever takes you in, stay there and eat whatever they put in front of you. And then he said this, those that don't receive you, I want you to shake the dust off your feet. Those that show you hospitality, accept not only you, but me and the gospel. Those who reject you, shake the dust off. That's a sign of rejection and separation. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 40, Jesus said it this way. He said, he who receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. And then he goes on to say, whoever gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. Giving a cup of cold water to a brother is like giving it to the Lord.
You see, when you have the preacher to dinner, you're really inviting the Lord. I wanted you to get that. Love for strangers is an essential quality in a Christian's life. And what John wants us to see is that hospitality needs to be balanced by truth. It needs to be discriminating. It needs to be discerning. And so he lays out four features about love in this letter. He shows us the basis of love, the behavior of love, the boundary of love, and the blessing of love. First of all, the basis of love in verses 1 to 3. Verse 1 says, The elder to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in truth. Now, John refers to himself here as the elder. Now, possibly he's referring to the fact that he is an old man at this point in time. Uh, Paul does a similar thing in, in Philemon 9. He calls himself Paul the Aged. But it's more likely that he's making a reference here to his position that he held in the church at Ephesus. He was an elder. Peter refers to himself that same way in 1 Peter 5.1. He says, I am your fellow elder. Now, I find this very interesting because John is writing at least 25 years after all the other apostles have died. And how does he refer to himself? As the Pope? No. Does he refer to himself as Father? John? No. Does he refer to himself as Most Reverend? No. He says, I'm the Elder. Simply that. And who does he write to? The Chosen Lady. Now, who is this? Well, I've read numerous suggestions on who this is. Let me give you a few. That it's a reference to the whole church that it's a reference to the church at Babylon, that this is a reference to an unnamed local church, that the chosen lady is Mary, the mother of Jesus, that this is a reference to Martha, whose name is Aramaic for lady, that her name was chosen, Electra in Greek, that her name was lady, Korea in Greek, or that this is an anonymous Christian lady. Now, I give you all those suggestions just to confuse you. I, I think the best two choices there are that this is an unnamed local church or it's an anonymous Christian lady. I prefer to take it as a Christian lady because although the universal church is referred to as the bride of Christ, you never find that metaphor used of a local church. The closest parallel would be 1 Peter 5.13 where, where Peter says, she who is in Babylon greets you. Now we don't know who she is in Babylon, but if that's a local church, he uses the feminine pronoun in reference to a church. But the bigger problem I have here is that if you take this to be a local church, then he says to the local church and her children. Now local churches don't have children. God does. You are not a child of Cape Bible Chapel. You are a child of God. And people say, well, but if you don't take it as a local church, then you've got, 
John in love with some woman. Well, verse 1 says he loves who? The whole family. You see, this is not romance. I find this rather exciting. It, it, it makes it personal. In fact, this is the only letter in the New Testament written to a woman. And it's really consistent because he writes Second John to this lady and her children. He writes it to an individual. When we come to Third John, we find that it also is written to an individual by the name of Gaius. Now, what does John say about this lady and her children? He says, whom I love in truth. Now, there's the basis of love. It's truth. In fact, you will find truth used five times in the first four verses because love and truth are inseparable. John said in 1 John 3.18, we are to love in deed and in truth because truth is the basis of love. You see, you cannot love in falsehood. That's the problem I have with the ecumenical movement. It's a great concept, but it's the wrong method. Because their approach is, let's set aside doctrine and just love each other. But you can't do that, because truth and love are inseparable. You can't destroy truth in order to build love. You can't increase love by decreasing truth. It won't happen. Because truth generates love. In fact, for an example of that, look at 1 Peter chapter 1. Just a few pages earlier in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 22. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. Now, don't miss the equation in this verse. How do you get a sincere love of the brethren? Well, he says you get a sincere love of the brethren from a pure heart. And how do you get a pure heart? By obedience to the truth. Obedience to the truth brings about in me a pure heart, and out of that pure heart flows sincere love. You see, truth is the basis of love. Biblical love is not first established in your emotions. Biblical love is first established in your decisions. Now, don't get me wrong. When you love, there will be emotions. But feeling is not the engine of love. Truth is the engine of love. And so John tells us what the basis of love is in this phrase, I love in truth. And he's not alone because he goes on to say, and not only I, but also all who know the truth. John could say to this family, not only do I love you, but all that know the truth love you. And I can say that to you this morning. If you're a Christian, everyone who knows the truth loves you. You say, well, how can you say that? I haven't met most of them. Well, I can say that because it's true. You see, the circle of love 
is just as wide as the circle of faith. All Christians love you. If they don't love you, they're not Christians. And why do they love you? Well, look at the rest of the verse. It says, and not, or in verse 2, Not only I, but also all who know the truth, for the sake of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. You see, the kind of love that John is talking about is not a love based on personality or physical attraction. I don't say, there's a Christian that looks pretty good. I think I could love that person. No. It's not based on personality or physical attraction or compatibility. It's based on truth. You see, I love you because we stand together in the truth. Because we're both redeemed. Because we believe the same gospel. Because we are attached to the same Savior. Because we hold to the same Word of God. But if you look carefully at verse 2, it's more than that. Because it's not just that we share a philosophical point of view. He says, the truth which abides in us. 1 Peter chapter 1 says we're saved by truth. John 8 says we're set free by the truth. John 17 says we're set apart by the truth. And here we're told that the truth abides in us. The truth is at home in us. And because it's at home in us, it is trans... What word am I looking for? Transforming us. It's changing us. And as, as the truth abides in me and the truth abides in you, as it's changing us, it's actually producing love in me and making you more lovable. That's why you meet a Christian. Sometimes you meet a Christian on a trip and you find out they're a Christian and you begin to fellowship together and there's an immediate bonding that takes place. Why is that? Because the truth abides in us. And then John adds this great statement, and will be with us forever. Wow. Relationships that are eternal. That's a great truth. And then he goes to the greeting in verse 3. He says, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. Real simple. Grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. Mercy is God withholding from us what we do deserve. And peace is the restoration of harmony with God, with others, and with ourselves. Mercy is God withholding the judgment we deserve. Grace is God blessing us with the salvation we don't deserve. And peace is the character of that salvation, which is harmony. And how is it fully realized? Notice the end of verse 3. In truth... And love. We experience God's grace and mercy and peace in truth and love. You see, those two have to be balanced in our relationship with God. And those two have to be balanced in our relationship with other people. Truth without love leads to legalism. Love without truth leads to license. Truth without love is cold orthodoxy. Love without truth is empty sentimentalism. You see, we're not to have hard truth. 
You know you've got hard truth when you're better at laying down the law than you are at laying down your life. What does the Bible say to those of us who have hard truth? Well, Paul says in Ephesians 4.15, we are to speak the truth in love. We're not to have hard truth. On the other hand, we're not to have soft love. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 5, Paul says, May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God. Know what it says in the very next verse? He says, Keep aloof from those who live an unruly life. Love in one verse. The next verse says, Stay away from those who are disobedient. Love and discipline go together. You see, if you tell me that you love your kids but I don't see any discipline or correction or boundaries, then I'm going to assume that you don't. We're not to have hard truth. We're not to have soft love. Love and truth must be balanced in our lives. John Stott said, Our love grows soft if it's not strengthened by truth, and our truth grows hard if it's not softened by love. The basis of love is truth. Second point is the behavior of love in verses 4 to 6. Notice verse 4. I was very glad to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we have received commandment to do from the Father. I found some of your children, and what are they doing? They're walking in the truth. Now that's behavior. They're walking. They're conducting their life in the truth. Truth is not to be theorized. Truth is to be actualized. Truth is not just intellectual. It's tangible. It's to be walked in. And this walk in truth is not optional because John tells us it's a command of the Father. It's to be obeyed. So he says, I ran into some of your children and they're walking in the truth. And then verse 5, And now I ask you, lady, not as writing to you a new commandment, but the one which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. I ran into some of your kids. Now I have a commandment for you, lady. It's not new. It's old. And it's not just for you. It's for we. And what is the commandment? That we love one another. You say, now wait a minute. The command in verse 4 is to walk in the truth. The command in verse 5 is to love one another. Which is it, John? Is the command to walk in truth or is the command to love one another? Well, look at verse 6. He says, and this is love that we walk according to His commandments. This is the commandment just as you have heard from the beginning that we should walk in in it. This is love. What is love? What is the expression of love? How do I express love? I express it by walking according to His commandments, by walking in the truth. You see, the commandment to love and the commandment to walk in the truth are interchangeable. You can't separate them because the behavior of love is walking in the truth. Now, this becomes real practical. Some of us like to compartmentalize 
obedience, and love. You say, well, I don't really want to walk in truth in every area of my life. But I do want to be a loving husband, a loving wife, a loving father, a loving mother. I, I like to compartmentalize. I don't necessarily want to obey the Lord all the time, but I do want love. So you can't have both. If you have a secret area of sin in your life, if you have an area in your life where you are not walking in obedience to the Lord, you're out of balance. And that lack of balance will kill you in the area of relationships. Let's say that you like to sneak onto some pornographic sites on the internet when nobody's watching. Nobody knows. But you and God. You know what happens when you do that? you start becoming short-tempered and grumpy and selfish and cranky in your relationships. And you may find yourself saying, I'm blowing up all the time and I don't know why. Well, I know why. It's because truth and love have to be in balance. If you're not walking in truth, it's going to show up in your love life, in relationship with other people. You can't have one without the other because John tells us the behavior of love is walking in the truth. Third is the boundary of love in verses 7 to 11. Where do I draw the line in the extension of my love? Where do I draw the line in the extension of my hospitality? Look at verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh, this is the deceiver and the antichrist. Have you ever watched a magic show? You watch a magician, he, he cuts people in half. He makes people disappear. And you sit there and you go, well, how did he do that? I'll tell you how he did that. He tricked you. That's how he did it. He deceived you into believing something that wasn't the truth. And John says there are many deceivers who have gone out into the world deceiving you about ultimate truth. And what is ultimate truth? Well, he tells us here, they do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. When you hear a preacher the issue is not how flamboyant he is. The issue is not how big a vocabulary he has. The issue is not how many books he's written. The issue is what does he conclude about Jesus Christ? Is Jesus the God-man? Is he God in the flesh? And John warns us that many have gone out deceiving people in this area of truth. And so he says in verse 8, Watch yourselves that you might not lose what we have accomplished, but that you might receive a full reward. False teachers inevitably offer you something you don't have. 
The truth is they're trying to take away what you already have. And so John says, watch yourselves, be careful. If you don't keep this balance between love and truth in the area of boundaries, John says you're going to lose something. Now, he doesn't say you're going to lose your salvation. That's a gift that they can't take away. But he does say you can lose your reward because you will get sidetracked from serving God. You see, if you fall for the popular notion that it's more loving to be open-minded, you lose. As an unbeliever, you lose out on life. As a believer, you lose out on your full reward. And then John returns to the test in verse 9. He says, anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. Anyone who goes too far, anyone who goes on ahead. Now, I am assuming that this is probably a phrase taken from the terminology of the false teachers. Because in that day, the false teachers were Gnostics. And they were always saying, we've gone past that. We have superior knowledge. We're progressive. We have something new and better. We still hear people saying that today. The Bible's okay, but you need the Koran. The Bible's okay, but you need the Book of Mormon. You need science and health and key to the scriptures. You need the Watchtower magazine. Well, John says, those who go beyond and don't abide in Christ's teaching don't have God. You see, they've gone on all right, and they've left God behind. People say, judge not. It's not loving to judge. Well, when it comes to sitting under a teacher, the most loving thing you can do is judge. Because you need to make a judgment about that person. You need to discriminate about whether they are of God or not of God. And the basis for that is what they say about Jesus Christ. And then love has to act. Verse 10 and 11. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting, for the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. The loving response to a false teacher is don't receive him into your house and don't give him a greeting. Don't say, God bless you. God be with you. Now I want you to notice some things here in understanding this ver these two verses. Number one, this applies to teachers. This is not referring to people who are caught up in some false teaching. This is not talking about your neighbor if they're confused in some kind of area relative to this. He's talking about a teacher. He says they come to you as an official proponent, teacher of this doctrine. Secondly, we need to understand that receiving a person into your home in the first century implied 
giving them food, giving them a place to stay, helping them on their mission. See, he's not saying here you're, you're to cuss them out at Walmart in the center aisle. You know, he's not saying when the, when the Jehovah's Witness knock on your door to sick your, you know, Doberman on them. That's not what he's saying here. In fact, I have, on a number of occasions, invited Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons into my house. When they knock on the door, I say, come on in. They don't stay very long. <laughs> because I give them the test. I ask them, who is Jesus? I interrupt their, their spiel. They want to go through a spiel. You interrupt that and you say, well, I want you to tell me who Jesus is. And then I speak the truth in love. Now, I wouldn't suggest that for everyone. I wouldn't suggest that for many of you because they're very clever and they're very deceitful. The reason I do it is I find that they usually come in pairs and usually one of them's a teacher, one of them's a, a veteran, and the other's a beginner. So I aim at the beginner. And I think if they'll come in and give me the chance to talk, then I'm going to get to give the gospel to this individual who's just starting out. And I don't want him to, to go throughout the neighborhood thinking his only impression of Christians is that they slam the door in his face. So I take that opportunity. I'm not suggesting that for everyone. Thirdly, the issue here is the person of Christ. He says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, what teaching? Verse 9, the teaching of Christ. And then it goes back to verse 7. They do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. You see, the issue here is the deity of Jesus Christ. You don't apply this verse to other areas of disagreement. You know, you're not sitting down to meal with somebody and you go, you mean you sprinkle? Get out. No. The issue here is the fundamental issue of all issues, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. Who is He? And when someone comes as a false teacher and says that Jesus is not God, that's where I draw the line in the area of love. That's where I draw the line in the area of hospitality. The boundary of my love is the person of Jesus Christ. And then fourthly, and lastly, the blessing of love, verses 12 and 13. Verse 12 says, Having many things to write to you, I do not want to do so with paper and ink, for I hope to come to you and speak face to face that your joy may be made full. John says, I've got a lot of more things to say, and I don't want to turn this postcard into a letter. So I'm going to come to you. I, I would rather speak to you face to face. I would rather come and enjoy some of this hospitality that we're talking about. I want to enjoy a relationship balanced with love and truth. And what's the blessing of that? He says that our joy may be made full. When you have a relationship that is balanced between love and truth, the blessing is joy, full joy. And then he says in verse 13, the children of your chosen sister greet you. I bring greetings from your nieces and nephews. The blessing of love is joy. Keeping your balance between love and truth is essential. Without it, you're going to lose out. 
You're going to lose out in your relationship with God. You're going to lose out in your relationship with others. And so John reminds us in this little letter, truth is the basis of love. Truth defines the behavior of love. Truth sets the boundary of love. And truth provides the blessing of love, the joy of real fellowship. We're going to close in prayer this morning. Before we do, I'm going to ask Brandy Zapata, that's the way I got it anyway, uh, to come forward. Thank you, Brandy. Is that the way you say your last name? Good. Brandy, of course, was baptized this morning. And uh, I'm going to ask you, as soon as you get to the front and everybody gets a chance to look at you, to go out with Dad to the lobby. And you can go ahead and start that way.